Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. I'm your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and I'm being joined remotely from the steel city of Pittsburgh by my good friend and fellow Gen X sports geek, Jeff Gordon. No, not that Jeff Gordon. This Jeff Gordon is a labor lawyer from outside of Columbus, Ohio, who knows something about being an Ohio sports fan, even if he was never really indoctrinated into the dog town of Cleveland. Another fun fact about Jeff is that he is related by marriage to the custard king of Cleveland, his wife's <laughs> uncle Ivan, who owns East Coast Frozen Custard Stores. Maybe they could be a sponsor. And to me, that's much cooler than being related to Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago, if you ask me. So, Peter, thank you so much uh, for inviting welcome, me on. Jeffrey. You are very welcome. Great to have you. Yes. We're going to be talking about the 1985 to 1989 Cleveland Browns. I didn't mention that at the start. But we're going to talk about this team who had so much talent but never really reached the pinnacle. As always, I like to start off with a little bit of backstory. Now, everyone who's a football fan thinks they know about the Cleveland Browns. They've got a bad, boring name. Their uniforms are ugly. They have a different quarterback, a different coach every year, probably for the last 15 years. They've never even been to a Super Bowl as of the taping of this uh, podcast. But yet they have a hardcore loyal fan base, especially in the dog pound, where people eat dog biscuits, throw dog biscuits, dress as dogs. And they cheer so hard and they're always disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong. All of that is true, but that's really far from the whole story. So here's the rest of it. We're going to start off with the founding of the Browns in 1946, and they were named after their original coach and co-founder of the team, Paul Brown. Talk about ego, naming your team after yourself. I thought of the same thing, and, and, and yeah. that, that's the little hidden reason why they are the only team in the NFL that doesn't have a logo on their helmets, because how do you draw, or what do you show for a Brown? Well, <laughs> it's what they've so done- ridiculous. I they mean, do have this little pixie thing that they that they have sometimes, this little uh, thing. Yeah, well, it, you know, I mean, just imagine, you're right, having the ego be like, yeah, let's name the team the Gordons or the Shaws. <laughs> like, that's exactly. Just, come no on now. Go, no one would go see us play. Self-gloss. Exactly. So this team started off, and there was a new upstart league to challenge the NFL, the AAFC, or All-American Football Conference, in the 40s. Now, the league was not really financially sustainable versus the NFL, much like USFL and the WFL figured out, and it only lasted four years. But they did attract some amazing talent. Sometimes, you know, money talks. And by the time the league folded, the dominant Browns had actually won the title every year. So the NFL decided to absorb three teams when the AAFC went tits up, as uh, Mike Myers says. So I married an axe murder. So the Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and the original Baltimore Colts uh, were absorbed. Now, they originally called the Miami Seahawks, which is just kind of a weird combo to think about now. But they became that those new Baltimore Colts became extinct in 1950. Three years later, the new, the new new Baltimore Colts began. And they were the same team that eventually broke Baltimore's heart by slinking off into the night and fleeing to Indianapolis after the 1983 season. But really, well, enough about the Colts. We'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the Colts later. They'll make a cameo. So now these Browns started in the NFL right where they left off. In their first eight years in the league, they were in the NFL championship game seven times and won three times. They were still being coached by their namesake, Mr. Brown. And they had the famous fast, face maskless quarterback stud, Otto Graham, leading them up through 1955. Of course, nobody wore face masks at this time, but all the photos of Otto Graham 
on him running around with some soft leather helmet and somehow surviving. So the last year Graham played, the Browns drafted some big multi-sport star from the university uh, known as Syracuse named Jim Brown, who was not related to Paul. Never heard of him. Yeah, you've heard, you've heard of Jim Brown, I believe. Now, this dude may have been one of the best college athletes or just athletes ever. He earned 10 varsity letters at Syracuse in four sports, football, lacrosse, basketball, and track. And if he had enough time to play baseball and soccer, he probably could have lettered in those in well as well. He was that freaking good. Without getting into too much, he was the best player in the NFL for every year in the league. He played in three NFL championship games, um, and he won one. And in 64, they even beat Johnny Unitas and the Colts 27 to nothing. So the next year, they lost in the final of the NFL, of the NFL final to Bart Starr and the Packers in the last year before the Super Bowl was played. So just to finish up Jimmy Brown's story, at least part of it, he retired at the peak of his career, much like Barry Sanders later did, to go and try to make it in Hollywood. And after that, this the 64 championship was the last time the Browns won any type of title. The one yes, thing that just jumps out at me, and, and I think a lot of people now think of kind of the beleaguered Cleveland, just general sports fans. Um, the Browns obviously were incredibly good in, in their beginnings. And, you know, growing up in Columbus, I wasn't in Cleveland per se, but growing up, it was always strange how entitled they actually still felt about the fact that they were so good in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, this is 20 years in the rearview mirror, and they're still talking like they're this, you know, amazing franchise that's the best in the league. So it always struck me as the people were like, oh, the Browns are like this legendary great team. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like exactly. it's like being a Raiders fan in the 90s of the aughts, right? They're still <laughs> talking about Al Davis and just win baby and all this stuff. It's like you're living in the past, man. So sorry exactly. to interrupt, but that, that, that past that's was no. relevant to their story. So there was that whole thing. Around that I believe time. it. And, you know, they do, I don't know, believe about it. I never saw autogram play except for a little bit of black and white footage. But every single time I see a highlight of Jim Brown, I say to myself, this guy could tear it up today. Oh, he, yeah. He was a freight train. Yeah. And he just he was fast. He, he just was amazing. But, you know, he retired, went off to Hollywood, became politically active, still politically active. We're not going to focus on him, even though he's a very interesting character. Since that time, they actually had a little bit of success in the early 70s. They made it to the playoffs four out of five years in the late 60s, early 70s. Never really got too far deep into the playoffs and never made it to the Super Bowl. 78 to 84, they had this fiery coach named Sam Ritigliano at the helm who gave them a little bit of excitement. Now, actually, before he was with the Browns, he coached three high schools, served as an assistant on two NCAA Division I teams, and then he was an assistant for four NFL teams. Fun fact, one of the high schools he coached early in his career in 1962-63 was my high school in Chappaqua, New York, in suburban Westchester County. So he was the head coach for the Horace Greeley High School Quakers. Now, he felt the Quakers, who are pacifists by nature, was too wimpy a name to have as a sports nickname for your football team. So he changed the team to the Falcons. I don't know what his one loss record was there for the two years he was there, but I think he was a little too intense for the school and the school board. So after a couple of years, they parted ways with him and they went back to calling themselves the Quakers, which is still the nickname today. There is a rumor that there are boxes of Scurley High School Falcons football swag somewhere in the basement in some store in town. And I'm probably the only one that actually wants to get a hold of one of those shirts if they do exist. But that's the way it goes. So go Greeley. Go fighting Quakers.
<laughs> so another another quick fun fact: my brother uh, Tim, who was featured in the uh, Chargers podcast, played safety, running back, and kick returner, and also held down the place kicks for these very same Horace Grove High School Quakers from '85 to '89, and was recently inducted into the Jewish Defensive Backs Hall of Fame, where he is still the only member. Now Nate Ebner, who played D back and special teams at Ohio State, also played some Olympic rugby on the seventh circuit is now in the NFL playing special teams. He may be up on the ballot next year, but we don't know because the Hall of Fame really was in my brother's old bedroom in our old house. Nate Abner, he, uh, he grew up like 10 minutes away from me. Yeah. Uh, I digress. <laughs> no, that's cool. So Sam Ritigliano. So I've told a lot about his backstory, probably more than anyone ever wanted to know except maybe Sam's grandkids. The team got a little better every year. And then in 1980 – they had the NFL MVP and quarterback, Brian Seip, and they were winning every close game they were in, so they had the nickname the Cardiac Kids. Now, after this team started 0-2, they won 11 of their last 12, 11 of their last 14 games, I should say, including 9 of 12 decided by a touchdown or less. They had two running backs named Pruitt who were not related, Mike and Greg. They had a Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer, I should say, Ozzie Newsom at tight end. And one of the running backs is former Heisman Trophy winner Charles White. Interesting, they also had an aging former Cowboy running back named Calvin Hill, who had six touchdown receptions out of the backfield. His son was Grant Hill, who would go on to be a pretty good basketball player. Now, on defense, one of their stars was linebacker Clay Matthews Sr. So you start to feel old when you see the kids of the guys you cheered for playing in the NFL. Um, They're actually, like, retiring. So they, they won the AFC Central Division with an 11-5 record and hosted the most evil of wildcard teams, the evil empire, the Oakland Raiders in Cleveland's Municipal Stadium after they got a first-round bye. There was typically ugly, wintry conditions. It was a defensive struggle. The Browns led 12-7 to going into the fourth quarter, but Oakland's Mark Van Egan, a Colgate alum, rushed for second, his second touchdown of the day to take a 14-12 lead. Browns kicker Don Cockcroft, one of the last of the American-style kickers, missed a PAT and two field goals and then also uh, during that game. And also the Browns holder fumbled another snap, attempting a 27-yarder. So the Browns had left 10 points on the board, yet they still had a chance to beat the Raiders. They drove to the Oakland 13 with 49 seconds left, and Sam Ritigliano was jumping up and down on the sideline. Instead of Running the clock down, however, and taking the field goal attempt, they didn't trust Cockroft at that point. I don't know who would. They decided to run one more play to go for the end zone, and if that failed, they would go for the game-winning field goal. So now this is one of the more infamous, infamous plays in Brown's history, red right 88. So Brian Seip dropped back and tried to force a pass into the sure-handed Ozzie Newsom in the end zone, but it was intercepted, and the Raiders won. The Cardiac Kids arrested, and they were DOA that season. I remember that game very well, but I watched it with a bunch of rabid Browns fans. I'd say they were devastated for sure about the pick. People were shanking field goals all the time in there. It was impossible to kick, especially late in seasons. You know, it was always a nightmare. So, um, yeah, they were, we were all upset about it, but there wasn't like that whole second-guessing about the call. Red right 88 was the right call. It just execution was a little off. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it was a sad day for Cleveland Brown fans. So, so they, this is still part of the backstory, but you see we're, we're providing so much fleshy backstory. We're setting the appetizer for the main course, which is coming shortly. 
Now, the Browns did make the playoffs the next year, strike short in 83 season, but they lost the wild card game to the Raiders, who are now then in L.A. So, Retigliano coached them until he was actually fired and replaced by defensive coordinator Marty Schottenheimer halfway through the 84 season, at which point they were 1-7. and seven. Now, under Marty, they played Marty Ball, and they, they were 500 the rest of the year and finished 5-11, and 11, which was disappointing after two straight playoff years. Marty was from Cannonsburg, PA, not too far from Pittsburgh, played football at Pitt, and spent a few years in the AFL playing for the Patriots and the Bills, and later even coached for the Portland Storm in the very short-lived World Football League in 74. He went on to be a linebacker's coach, D coordinator for the Giants, linebacker coach for the Lions, eventually defensive coordinator for the Browns. And then just like so often when a coach is executed in the public square, they elevate a defensive or offensive coordinator to be the head coach. So Marty took over the helm of the Browns. Now moving on to the 85 season when the story really starts, this was Marty's first year as coach. They had the number one overall pick the supplemental draft, which I still don't understand how that works. And they picked Youngstown, Ohio's own quarterback, Bernie Kozar, who had just graduated from the U. I do, because uh, you said you didn't understand how it worked, and I, and I can't pretend to be a draft expert, but if you recall, this was still the time in college football, like in the 70s, they started letting freshmen play, but they still were not, under most circumstances, letting people go out early. And you had to do strange, different things. And there were all these kind of people would go to the USFL. They do different things. But actually, Bernie was a super smart guy and had graduated uh, with like a double major in economics and finance in three years at Miami, believe it or not. So he petitioned and there was a whole big thing about uh, who was going to get the number one picks. And there were trades and that, that, that whole thing's way beyond the scope. But um, the, the point being they had the supplemental draft, and he essentially sort of got to call the shots and chose to come to Cleveland and, and was like the local boy. He was from Youngstown down the road. Right, right. The local the boy, boy coming, coming home. home. So there was that whole dynamic there. It was like they felt betrayed that he went down to Miami. He came in and was ready to play, you know, as a rookie. His backup was uh, current college football broadcaster Gary Danielson, who played a lot for the Lions. And actually his first year, he actually had a better record as a starter than Bernie. Combined in that first year of 85, they, they threw 16 touchdowns and 13 interceptions, which is quite pedestrian by today's inflated NFL stat standards. But they had an offense with powered by 2,000-yard rushers and Ernest Biner and Kevin Mack, who's the fullback. Now, Mack went on to make the Pro Bowl. He also uh, was joined on the Pro Bowl roster by tight end Ozzie Newsom, who was going to come up again and again because he was just so consistently spectacular. Now, despite this talent, the team was only able to muster the 23rd best scoring offense in the 2018 NFL. Now, luckily for them, their defense was solid. They had the seventh best D in the league in regards to points allowed. They were led by Clay Matthews Sr., as I mentioned. Mercurial Chip Banks at linebacker, Bob Golick, anchored the front three as nose tackle. And most people remember Bob's brother, Mike, who was a solid defensive lineman, but not as good as his brother, he became more famous as one half of the ESPN morning show, Mike and Mike Show. He later went on to lose weight as part of uh, the Nutrisystem and endorsed them. So that's enough about Mike and Mike and the Gollocks. This. And he was, he, was, he was a very, very solid defensive player. Yeah, he was a pro bowler a couple years. Right. And then they had these stud cornerbacks, Frank Minifield and Hanford Dixon, who had cool names, but they also were just spectacular coming to pass. And 
this is when there were not a lot of, there were no targeting calls and these guys would hit like, like a brick wall. These guys were devastating to anyone coming across the middle and nothing hurt more than getting hit by like Minifield. Then right afterwards, when you hit the hard Cleveland turf in December, I mean, talk about, talk about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Peter watching, watching, you know, this, the highlights from these games and it just brings back the memories of how different football was compared to watching like, you know, the playoff games yesterday. And even though they were playing in like Buffalo and green Bay, I mean, the turf was prescription turf. Now it's all perfectly manicured. And, and, and I'm not going to be one of these guys that, you know, harkens back and says, Oh, I wish it was like the old days. It was absolutely brutal. I mean, yeah. you were mentioning uh, Minifield and Dixon, but every team had one of these safeties in the eighties. That was just like a headhunter, Ronnie Lott, you know, yeah. Steve Atwater, Steve Atwater, uh, yeah, he was Dennis assassin. Smith. Yeah. I mean, all these guys. Everybody had a guy who just like a receiver comes over the middle and just gets smoked, and yeah. then lands like you said on the either the astroturf, which was just concrete with like brittle like brush <laughs> crap on it, or like you know frozen dirt. It was exactly. brutal. Now that's now, why they're all in wheelchairs it? now, unfortunately. Right, I know it's it's sad, but it now sad. when all. When all said and done for that year, so they had good running backs, a solid D, passable quarterback, so to speak, and then um, they ended up going eight, eight, but that was surprisingly good enough to be the AFC Central champs. So I guess timing is everything. So this coincided with down years for the Steelers, Bengals, and Oilers, who all had success in the 80s. Now, two other AFC teams also finished 8-8 eight and eight that year. That was the Chargers and the Seahawks. But both of those teams actually ended the year four games out of first place. So the Browns were just in the right place at the right time. Their special teams coach was some dude named Bill Cower, Coach Cower, in his first coaching gig after a short pro career. He would later on, as we know, to take on the head coaching job in his hometown, Pittsburgh, in 92. And now he's, uh, after a Super Bowl and a, and a Hall of Fame career, he retired, and now he's an announcer wearing turtlenecks and blazers on TV. Moving on to the 85 playoffs. So they made the playoffs at 8-8. Eight and their first round opponent was the Dolphins in the Orange Bowl because obviously you don't host a home playoff game if you make it an eight and eight. Ironically, it's exactly where Bernie Kosar two years earlier led the University of Miami to their first national championship over the Nebraska Cornhuskers. The game actually started off for Kosar and the Browns like a dream. And they were playing Marino and Shula. So we're, we're talking about a solid Dolphins team. Minifield and Dixon were absolutely shutting down the two Marks, Super Duper, Mark Super Duper, and Mark Clayton, who were a spectacular duo at that time. And Marino was throwing for over, was the first guy to throw for over 5,000 yards to those guys. So those guys were getting absolutely shut down. So the, the Browns had the upper hand. Now Miami had a field goal. They were up 3-0. Kozar hit Newsom for a 16-yard touchdown. Then Ernest Biner did a spectacular 21-yard shake-and-bake touchdown run. And at halftime, the Browns were winning on the road in the Orange Bowl 14-3. to Later on, Biner got another run, a 66-yard touchdown run in the Miami Heat. And the game seemed to be blown open in the third quarter. It was 21-3 to Browns on the Best game of Biner's probably career. He was unbelievable in that game. So he would finish with 160, 160 yeah. yards on the road. I mean, on the road, on the ground, with only 16 carries. And the Browns outgained the Dolphins 251 yards to 92 on the ground all day. But, you know, when you're behind, you start throwing. And unfortunately for the Browns, Marino started to work around that tight cornerback coverage and just dumped it off again and again to running back Tony Nathan, 
who was really one of the top receivers out of the backfield at that time. Tony Nathan got over 100 yards receiving that day, and they dinked and dunked their way down the field to, to their running backs, and the, the Dolphins went on to score 21 straight points, including two touchdowns from short-yarded specialist Ron Davenport. The other touchdown was a short pass from Dan Marino to the very ready, steady Nat Moore. And the Browns, after that, really had no answer. And final score was Miami 24, Cleveland 21. The only thing I could, from reviewing the highlights of that game, the only thing I could think of besides, you know, they didn't close them out, was that maybe the Browns should not have been wearing dark brown jerseys in the South Florida sun because that probably led to some dehydration. That's that's my excuse for them. Why they? That's a, that's a theory. It's probably a good one. <laughs> dark brown jerseys, but it was a joke. They They turtled. Offensively, after those couple of binder runs, they were really conservative and just thought they could just grind it out. And it, it was, was ugly, disappointing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but a good thing. Now the Dolphins and Browns were probably both were, were actually both spared the embarrassment of getting annihilated by the uh, by the Super Bowl shuffle Chicago Bears that year in the Super Bowl. True. What happened to the Patriots who who upset the Dolphins in the AFC Championship? Now the Dolphins did give the Bears their only regular season loss when the Bears went fifteen and one on a very exciting Monday night game I watched every second of. But I can't imagine they would have beaten the Bears twice. We're never really going to know. And I will concur with the the master on that in that I agree. The Bears were not going to lose that game. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High-Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida. Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. So 86 season, they moved on. In the draft, they added wide receiver Webster Slaughter out of San Diego State, who was an instant starter. Their second-year wide receiver was Reggie Langhorn, who's no relation to Foghorn Langhorn or Leghorn. Ozzie Newsom was still there. So Kozar had a lot of good go-to receivers, and he threw for 3,900 yards at that time, which was a heck of a lot, 17 TDs and 10, only 10 interceptions. Now, Ernest Biner was dinged up for a good part of the year, but they brought in bruising running back Curtis Dickey from the Colts, and he complimented leading rusher Kevin Mack. And the O put up 24.4 points a game, which is fifth best in the league. They're spec- they had a uh, – oh, sorry. They brought in a new OC that year, a guy named Lindy Infante. Oh, yeah, And they yeah. threw much more. I mean, they're coming off a season where they, had, where they had a very rare combination of two lead backs, both of whom got 1,000 yards. And it was quite controversial that they went to this more of a – I mean, in today's standards, maybe not so much. I mean, I was looking at that and it said 17 touchdowns. I'm like, I remember them being this, like, high-flying aerial attack – 17 touchdowns back then was, you know, probably in the upper half of the league. And the yardage right. was really high. So they, they were considered – I mean, if you threw for 4,000 yards back then, um, Kozar was probably close to leading the league. Uh, yeah, so, agreed. But it was, a, it was considered, especially for these northern teams, you usually ground and pound. And they went to this more of your Air Coriel style there, uh, throwing out there for, for Peter. Exactly. <laughs> they were, they were awesome. run and gun. Yep. <laughs> So one thing that they did was uh, they also got a little boost on special teams that year. They had this wicked fast uh, kick returner named Gerald McNeil, who returned both a punt and a kickoff throughout the year for a touchdown. And he had he had a funny nickname. He was called the Ice Cube, which was in response to William the Refrigerator Perry's immense size 
and popularity the previous year for the for the 85 Bears. Now their D was essentially the same, you know, solid D line, good linebackers, hard hitting D backs. They finished 11th in the league in points allowed. And the Browns finished the season with an impressive 12 and four record. And actually, rather than barely winning the AFC Central, they won it quite easily. They were really good that year. Yeah, I mean that were, was the yeah. year. The year before they kind of stumbled into the playoffs. That year, I remember distinctly that you kind of felt like they were a dangerous team and could could potentially go all the way for sure. Yeah. So what they did, they and they came into the playoffs and they showed that. So the '86 playoffs in the divisional round, they hosted the wild card New York Jets, who had beaten the uh, Chiefs in the first round, 35 to 15, behind Pat Ryan. He's a deep cut only known by Jets fans. Pat Ryan threw three touchdowns, <laughs> and probably my favorite Jet of all time, Freeman McNeil, nicknamed Freeway at a UCLA. He ran up 135 yards and got a touchdown in the uh, in sending the Chiefs down to defeat. Well, you're a, a New York guy. Well, you were a Giants or Jets fan. I, I mean, I know you were a Chargers fan. It's mostly, small, it's uh, I pitied both of them at, in the. <laughs> I had to ask. I was curious. Do you remember I, though? I'm sure you do. They had a kind of a cool nickname for their D line at the time. Do you remember oh, the sack exchange? Yeah, Gastonon Klecko. They called him the sack exchange. So. Yeah, Marty oh, Lyons yeah. and Abdul Salam. Yeah. Ah, nice. I knew you would know. Yeah. So I yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I had my I had guys I liked on both teams. So Freeman yeah. McNeil was uh, number 24. Was one of my faves on the Jets at the time. So the Jets came to town to Municipal Stadium. And it was a balmy 32 degrees that day. The game was tight from the get-go. The teams traded scores in the first half. First, Ryan hit Wesley Walker, number 85, on a flea flicker for the Jets. Blind in one eye. Blind in one eye. That's, an, that's a fun fact. <laughs> still, still a special receiver. Now, Kozar answered that with a pass to Herb, Herman Fontenot. He sounds more like a French Huguenot than a running back for the Browns. Nice. But he scored a touchdown. Now, the Browns took the lead on a field goal by former NFL MVP Mark Mosley, another American-style kicker who they got in a late-season trade from Washington, and he took over for Cockcroft, who obviously disappointed the Browns, but still was a bit of a folk hero in Cleveland, I, I understand. This was countered by a Jet field goal off the instep of former soccer star and longtime Jet Pat Leahy. Fun fact about Pat Leahy, while he was in college at St. Louis University, which was always a soccer powerhouse, it was no WashU, but St. Louis University um, won three straight NCAA titles with Pat Leahy on the team. So the Billikens were pretty special at that. Brian McBride, another uh, soccer star that went to SLU. Yeah, well. Uh, you know that name? That is a deep, deep cut because he went yeah. on play for the Columbus. He was a neighbor of mine in the <laughs> late 90s. <laughs> name drop. Okay, yeah. enough about that type of football, as they say in the U.K. So at halftime, after a touchdown and field goal each, it was 10-10. Early in the third quarter, Leahy, off his instep, kicked another field goal. And going into the fourth, the, Jet, the Jets, surprisingly, led the Browns 13-10. In the fourth quarter, the Jets expanded their lead when Freeman McNeil busted off a very impressive 25-yard touchdown run around the right end to help the Jets go up 20-10. As Jeff alluded to earlier, the, the Browns really ramped up their passing game this year. So Kozar came out throwing. When he couldn't find anybody deep, he kept dinking and dunking until he got to the one-yard line. Then he handed off to Kevin Mack, who blew through uh, over the goal line to, to cut the lead to 2017 just after the two-minute warning. 
the Browns are down 20 to 17 with under two minutes left and the Browns have to kick off. What happens next is not surprising any Jets fans. The Browns got the ball back because they were playing the Jets. And Kozar hit Slaughter with a long pass down the left sideline to the five, which set up a game-tying field goal by Mosley in the final seconds. Overtime, baby. Free football for all. That whole uh, straight-on kicking thing you alluded to, and I didn't want to talk about soccer versus uh, – uh, but that, that – it was so inaccurate. Uh, the, uh, Mosley was good at it. Uh, but very few yeah. people could pull that off. And I yeah. remember in the 80s, and you'll appreciate this, all of these foreign-born soccer players ended yeah. up kicking. It was Raphael Septien and Uwe von Schaman and Rolf Benerska, and, and everybody brought in these soccer players. Now, Leahy was an American soccer player, but a lot of these teams Benerska was born in the States, but his parents were Germans. So. Okay, well, the name, I, you know, I, I figured there was yeah. some background. <laughs> um, I know Uwe von Schaumann, that was my favorite Uwe, name. Uwe was the best. Uwe, we talked yeah. about him in the Charger podcast. Oh, did you? Anyway, the, the, there was a whole – the move to soccer-style kicking is they literally would take a, the best – the strongest foot on the soccer team, and we, they would kick for the football team. And that was, exactly. like, uh, before the bar the, folks showed up, Matt and uh, – was it? Chris. Chris, thank Matt you. Chris, yeah. Rather than having the fat offensive lineman just tow it 20 yards straight on. Yeah. <laughs> on to overtime. The Browns move the ball down the field effectively, and they set up Mosley for a chip shot field goal to win the game. This was the old OT rules where you, if you score, it's over. And he missed. Like I said, man. <laughs> and the re- I know. Now, the rest of overtime went scoreless. The Browns D kept stuffing the Jets again and again and again. And they went on to the second overtime. So, BOGO overtime football, as we said. In the second OT, Kozar moved the team down again relatively easily and gave Mark Mosley a shot at redemption, a 37-yard field goal attempt. And Mosley actually put it right through the uprights. And the Browns improbably won 23-20 in double OT. Now, this is insane. Kozar ended up the game in amazing 33 for 64 passing attempts. 489 yards passing, so not efficient, but he did what he had to do to get him to help win their first playoff game since 1969. It's a big win. They called it – they had to give names at the time. Every every game had a name, right, or, or some exactly. play that got, you know, the red, right, uh, 88. This one was the Marathon in Municipal Stadium, I remember. The- oh, we'll give it – that's clever. It's not, not bad, I guess. No thriller in Manila, but – No, no. The so, alliteration wasn't quite there either. On to the AFC Championship game where they were the hosts going 12-4. and And they hosted John Elway and the Broncos. Now, the Broncos had beaten the Patriots by five by by the week before. So, welcome to Cleveland, John Elway. The forecast called for a wind chill temperature of eight degrees Fahrenheit and some light snow. So, sounds like Cleveland. I got I got to dive in here real quick just to just to do some set on this game. Couple things. One, you already alluded to it. The weather. I had been to one game, one uh, football game up there, Municipal Stadium, in in 85, and it was the second-last game of the season against the Oilers, um, and it was about 15 degrees, and the wind chill was about negative five, and it was the worst sports-watching experience of my life. I never (laughs) went to another Browns game after that, Um, and this was similar in terms of the temperature. I watched this game my brother, and, and he, of all things, was a Broncos fan. While I knew the entire state was, was cheering for the Browns, I, I was kind of quietly cheering for the Broncos in this one. But Browns flags flying everywhere. Here they were hosting the AFC Championship game. Now, Broncos, led by Elway, were having a great year. They started 6-0. and 
They finished on top of the AFC West with an 11 and five record. He had an excellent posse of receivers to throw to. He had Steve Watson, Watson, Mark Jackson, Vance Johnson out of the backfield, Gerald Wilhite, and he caught 64 passes out of the backfield, which led the whole team. Their best running back on the ground, I should say, was Sammy Winder, who finished the year with almost 800 t- yards and uh, nine TDs. Now, their D was solid. They had Carl the Snow Goose Mecklenburg, who just had this awesome toe head and mustache, and he was just uh, an intimidating man in the middle. And also future ESPN broadcaster Tom Jackson. On the front line, the D-line, they had right in Rulon Jones, who was an all-pro and got 13 and a half sacks. And they had some pretty solid D-backs. They had Dennis Smith, who I think you mentioned earlier, who was a sole Pro Bowl invite. But uh, they were solid defensively. The interesting thing is the script from the previous week's game for Cleveland was almost identical. They traded field goals and touchdowns. Kozar threw another touchdown pass to Fontenot. And Gerald Wilhite got a run. And they went into the half. And a half tied at 10. So spooky coincidence. The Broncos broke the tie in the third quarter when Rich Carlos, their kicker, put, he was soccer style, put through a field goal. And then going into the fourth, the Broncos were up 13 to 10, which is the same exact deficit the Browns faced the week before against the Jets. And the fourth quarter, the Broncos tied the game with a Mosley field goal and then got the ball back. And they, they had a third and six just inside Broncos territory. And Bernie wants to pass to Brian Brennan, one of their uh, slot receivers down the left sideline. The ground, as Jeff alluded to, was pretty crappy and uneven, particularly in the winter. Brennan had single coverage on him. And when he cut to catch the ball, the defensive back guarding him stumbled and fell and couldn't get up in time. So he caught it and ran into the end zone for a score. Brennan was a money player in the playoffs, come out of nowhere and score these huge touchdowns in big playoff games. He was, he was their big shot Bob Ori, if you will. Exactly. I like the, I like the NBA. <laughs> to cross-reference to another sport. Love. So the Browns were up 20-13 to 13 in the fourth quarter at home in the AFC Championship. So the Cleveland fans were more excited than if the Michael Stanley Band put on a free concert on the shores of Lake Erie. And on the same day was 10-cent beer night at the Indians game. Um, which Deep is, dives there, man. Deep, deep dives. Michael but Stanley Band. They were big up there. And I think he's a DJ there. So fans were rocking. Denver muffed the ensuing kickoff, and they let it roll to their two-yard line where they fell on it. So Cleveland's up by seven with 532 left to play in regulation. Now, what happened next was the thing of dreams or nightmares, depending upon your perspective. Elway came under center, and he was in command. He handed off to Sammy Winder a handful of times to give himself some breathing room, and he was a very, very mobile quarterback. So he scrambled for the first down to give the team even more breathing room. He then completed two passes down the middle of the field to get to the Cleveland 40 by the two-minute warning. After the two-minute warning, he dropped back through an incomplete pass, and then nose tackle Dave Puzzoli sacked Elway for an eight-yard loss. So so they had third and 18, needing a touchdown to tie the game. Elway calmly dropped back and hit Mark Jackson over the middle for a 20-yard gain and a first down with 147 left. That was the killer on that drive. I'm sure Cleveland fans' heart drops. Collective groan right there. Exactly. He he had another completion, a few incompletions, and now the Broncos were down, and they had a third and one from the Cleveland five. So they were in scoring range. Elway dropped back, rolled left through right, and hit a crossing. Mark Jackson with a bullet in the end zone. I I watched this play over and over. It was like it was shot out of a cannon. 
and the game was tied with 37 seconds left. And once again, the pattern for the Browns. Were Before you go into overtime, that was obviously they, they named that. That was a famous the, the drive. He had a crazy strong arm. They were that drive didn't win them the game. There was like five plus minutes left on the clock. It, the whole thing was pretty methodical, really. It wasn't like they were like rushed. It's like the um, 1980 U.S. hockey team beating the, the Russians. Is like everyone thinks that was it. It's like no, they had to go and win the gold medal game against right. Finland. You know, like they, the game wasn't over when when the drive happened. But, sorry, exactly. No, it's a good point. On to overtime for more free football, Brown style. Now, the Browns got the kickoff, but they ended up punting. They had third and two, and they handed off to Fontenot, and he got stuffed. So that's not a good way to start OT. Elway immediately went to work. He hit big tight end Mobley for 22 yards on the hard, muddy turf. And Elway scrambled away from the Browns' rush and hit Steve Watson down the left sideline to the Cleveland 22 for a first down. So things were not looking good for the Brownies. Then the Broncos ran it up the gut a few times, up to the 16, to the to center the ball for a 32-yard field goal attempt. And in came barefoot kicker Rich Carlos. He lined it up, and he kicked it high and far, and it just sailed inside the left upright for a 23-20 to win and a trip to the Super Bowl in Pasadena, which is much warmer than <laughs> That, he missed the kick, by the way. I watched. Yeah. I remember at the time too. They didn't have replay. I, I, it was like it was one of those ones where, yeah, if it went gone over the the crossbar and then kind of shanked afterwards. Everybody it was controversial, was, and even a lot of the guys in the Broncos admitted after the game that they thought he shanked it and missed it. Boy, every replay I've seen of it looks like it was it's, definitely yeah. wide. Yeah, it's a little. And, it did look a little wide. We only had one angle, so then. The Broncos went on to the Super Bowl in Cali, where they were actually beating the New York Giants 10-9 to at the half, but they were outscored 20-10 to in the second half behind a very efficient Phil Simms, who won the MVP on the day with three touchdowns and 22 for 25 passing. So no soup for you, Mr. O. <laughs> now, just a side note on – be a recurring Carlos, theme with the Broncos. Exactly. Barefoot kicker. I mean, I still have no idea why it was a fad to have barefoot kickers in the 70s and 80s. It makes no sense to me. Because, I mean, even if you get enough calluses on your instep, your foot can still be freaking cold in Cleveland in the winter. One quick side note on the barefoot kicker, and then we'll get off this crazy tangent. The Jets had a barefoot, not a barefoot punter. They had this guy, Chuck Ramsey, who punted wearing a sock. No shoe, just a sock. So my theory is he was an early Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. But Nice. <laughs> but we're going to move on to the 87 season. The Browns didn't really do much to bolster their team in the 87 draft, except they did get a big blocking fullback, Tim Manoa, out of Penn State. He was a bit of a bull, um, which it was, it's always good to have a good fullback. And they got kicker Jeff Yeager, or Jaegermeister, was probably one of his uh, nicknames. I'm just making it up if not. And he was uh, from Pod Fave UW. Go Huskies. Why, why, why are, is UW a it's Pod my brother. Fave? We'll just let it be. <laughs> let, let it be. Let it be, as uh, Paul McCartney said. No, you dub. <laughs> exactly. So back to the 87 Browns. So the 87 season would be no ordinary NFL season. It was a 24-day player strike, which was called after week two. And games that were scheduled for the third week of the season were just canceled. So it reduced the season of 15 games from 16. And weeks four, five, and six were played by scabs, by replacement players. Browns were one and one going into the strike. And thankfully, their scabs were pretty good. They won. They went two and one. 
And uh, even uh, before before the strike, actually, they beat the snot out of their hated rival, the Steelers, 34 to 10. So they were feeling pretty good. Because they went two and one in the scab games, they were they were still in the thick of things. They had um, Gary Danielson, who was off and on their backup quarterback for better part of half a decade. He actually played a scab game for them. <laughs> the think, second think... the second win they got, like. And I mean, Cleveland's a union town. Like that was a big thing. You didn't you didn't cross the picket line and play for yeah. the Scabs, but they made an exception. And Gary came out I and know. had like a four I, touchdown I guess, I game. I guess if it can help the Browns win, they'd let you do. Yeah, that. they 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 looked yes. the other way, and he had a best game of his career. He had like a four touchdown game, and they crushed the Bengals like thirty five and nothing. <laughs> All right, so post so post strike, you had Marty Schottenheimer at the helm, and the team was successful. The Browns still had that good offense. They were the third best scoring offense and the second best scoring defense. In the NFL, so not bad on Marty. Now, Bernie Kosar was still swinging the rock around. Gary Danielson was helping out. And Bernie threw for 22 touchdowns against nine picks and got over 3,000 yards. So very efficient year. The running backs were, once again, Ernest Biner and Kevin Mack. And I think that those guys could have easily been a B-cop buddy movie produced by Golan Globus. Uh, Golan Globus was the uh, movie production company that brought us Chuck Norris's Missing in Action and also all five American Ninja movies. So I think they would have brought us quality cinema with Biner and Mac as a bunch of tough cops. I don't think... And Jim were. Brown is their aging uh, mentor? Oh, oh, dude, it writes itself. That's <laughs> Jeffrey. It writes itself. They still had really good receivers. They had Webster Slaughter, Brian Brennan, Reggie Langhorn, Ozzie Newsome. They were catching all of Bernie's passes. The D was solid. It was like the same team. That is another yeah, observation. It was like there's a carbon copy of the year before, which makes complete sense. I mean, they were a 12 and 14 that was, you know, a, a, a shanked kick away from being in the Super Bowl. And they didn't mess with it. They just brought everybody great. back. They didn't yeah, fix don't, it. Yeah, don't blow it up. Don't blow it up. They did not. The D was great. They, they had Minifield who made the Pro Bowl. Uh, Dixon and Minifield both made the Pro Bowl, I should say. And Bob Golick made the Pro Bowl. Clay Matthews Sr. made the Pro Bowl. So they, 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 were, they were even maybe up a notch on defense. And when all was said and done, they went 10-5. and five. They won the AFC Central by one game over Houston. They had the second-best record in the whole AFC behind the 10-4-1 Denver Broncos. I mean, that's, so that's three straight years. I mean, the, the first year, 85, they were 8-8 eight and, eight and kind of stumbled in. But that's three years in a row as division champs. That's all for part one. For the Cleveland Browns, 1985 to 1989, please tune in in one week for part two, where Jeff Gordon and I will once again dissect this very promising Cleveland Browns team. The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production, and I wish to thank Lobo and his band Checky Brown for letting us use their song Hippie Bully for our theme song. Peace out.